We were like actually seeing it in front of our eyes. We were like actually shocked to see like a soldier or or anybody who works like just to shoot people in cold blood. Like they didn't want anybody to help who was like wounded or that's like you can't really imagine that. Like even if I'm telling you that but you really can't imagine that would be somebody that's cruel. Actually that's why I'm like keep telling myself that we were lucky. I'm your host, Tiffany Jelke, and this is In Their Own Voices, where we learn about refugees and put their stories in the heart of the data. On this episode, Bothina Matar describes what it was like on the ground in Dara, Syria, as conflict erupted and the government began attacking its own people. Bothina and her family were caught up in a media whirlwind in 2015, when Texas Governor Greg Abbott stated that Texas would not accept any Syrian refugees just as they arrived in New York City from fleeing Syria. We will also learn about the global migration crisis from Ciaran Donnelly, Senior Vice President of International Programs and International Rescue Committee. Bothina found herself and her family in the middle of a civilian uprising in 2011. The protests that erupted in response to the arrests of at least 15 Syrian children for painting anti-government graffiti on the walls of a school in response to the Arab Spring in Egypt and Tunisia, set off a conflict that continues to this day. Today, we start Bothina's story where it ended up, when she found herself sitting with Texas Congressman Mark Vesey as his guest at a joint session of Congress. Here's a clip from February 2017 from Dallas Station, NBC5. Also happening today, we have learned that Democrat Congressman Mark Vesey of Fort Worth will be bringing a Syrian refugee with him to that speech tomorrow evening. The refugee coming to North Texas in 2015. So a lot developing on the Hill. We'll be here for all of it. We're live in Washington, D.C. Julie Fine, NBC. The International Rescue Committee filmed Bothina and her husband Tamam's journey into the Capitol. I'm just hoping that's coming here to today and tonight is going to show the people the truth about us, that we have, like everybody else, have the right to live. And we want to live. During the joint session, as they sat quietly in the chamber, Congress rose to their feet several times in applause when President Trump made statements about keeping the country safe. The President of the United States. We were around six that were wearing hijab in different places. We couldn't be sitting together. And they kept cheering all the time and standing all the time. And to keep those out who will do us harm. To hear him saying all these words, you can see the hate and the bitter in his voice. So it made me feel like a little sad. And to see all these people agreeing and cheering him when he's saying that. And that's what made me really uncomfortable. Let's go back to the beginning with Bothina and her family in Syria. I lived in Dara, south of Syria. It's a small city, so it's like about 600,000 people. I was born in Abu Dhabi, UAE, because my family were living there. But at the sixth grade, we went back 
to Syria. When we first moved back to Syria, I was like really sad. I'm leaving my friends and like the place that I was born in. But then meeting the relatives and the friends and actually living in the place that your family is, we got back connected together and we had like a great childhood. All the time, big meals and <laughs> all the family I left. We used to like go to the beach every year to all together. So like my aunts, my uncles and their kids and their family all together. So like at least seven families all together. Fun times. All that would change in an instant when events in Daraa became the catalyst of the Syrian crisis. After the children wrote anti-Assad sentiments on the wall of a school in Daraa, they were arrested and tortured for over a month. Parents began to protest. What, what happened in Syria started in my city, so like it was like was it didn't start in, in like another city, but it started in my city, and we were like actually witness of what happened, and we've seen it like in our own eyes. Like nobody told us, we didn't hear about it in the news. We just saw it in front of us, and that would like actually made the people <coughs> protest. Mm -hmm. And after that, we just heard that they took the kids. And they refused to let them out, even like their families and their parents went to see the governor and went to see <clears throat> who's like in charge. And like they kept them for over a month and they tortured, it, they tortured them. So that like when, when that happened, the people started like to protest. They tried to like to see if there's a way to get them out because they are like just children playing. Mm -hmm. And when the people started like to protest, they were forced and they were actually like the military and the securities like actually shot the people in protest and they were like just in peace. They were like protesting in peace. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that in uh, like front of our, yeah, in, on our own eyes. Mm -hmm. And that like, that made a lot of like, if there were like the first time they were like 10 people. The, next, the second time they were like 30 people and then 50 and then 100 mm -hmm. because they kept like fighting them and they sh kept shooting them. Mm -hmm. And actually we've been <clears throat> like trying uh, like to see if there's a way and they like tried to talk to the government but they were forced of like a hard word that had been like said to them and that made the people even like more angry. Mm -hmm. And they even like... They, like, some people were actually sent to see the, the president himself, and he acted that he didn't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. And how come, like, you are a president if you don't know what's happening in your city? Yeah. Or, like, your country? Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. So, like, the, the thing, like, it started to, like, get bigger and bigger mm -hmm. until after, <clears throat> like, around a month or so, they, we've been like sieged in my city. Mm -hmm. We they held out like the food mm -hmm. and the drink, and they like went into like t with, with tanks into, uh, like front of our houses mm -hmm. and places. They showed people. They arrested a lot of men yeah. and a lot of women. And that's like when that happened, it began like to expand out of my city. So like another city stood by us with us, and then another city, and that's. And we've been there, uh, like, stayed in my, in my city, and we didn't want to, like, leave. So, like, even my husband didn't get his passport. Like, he didn't get out any passport because he wasn't thinking about leaving. The hostility escalated and began to affect Bathina and her family directly. When somebody knocked on the door, and there were, like, two young men between, like, 
even like younger, they were like 16, 18 years old, and they were like uh, running, and they were like asked us just to hide them. And when we did, we got them to our house and they just told them not to act, that they were like sitting with us. And then the, <clears throat> the military came to our house, uh, knocked on the door, actually, yeah, we opened the door and they were like trying to take them. And they, just because they saw them walking on the street when there's like a closed protester nearby. Mm -hmm. And they were actually uh, wanted to take them, to arrest them. And I was pregnant in the like eight month, mm -hmm. and I was trying to hold on to one of the the guys, the the, the young men, and just to stop the 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 military, what's called the guy. She's talking about Assad's Syrian army soldier here. To uh, like not take, not arrest him, and then he pointed his gun over my belly, mm -hmm. and my son Majid, he was like two years, he was crying, and. He saw, he saw this this thing, but he I don't think he remembers now. Thank God, but I remember this incident, and it's like it's the least thing that happened to anybody else. Like I was lucky that I he didn't shock me or anything. Mm -hmm. And then he took they they took the two young men, just because they were like sitting, and he was like swearing to him and telling him that I was I was coming back from work it was because in the summer. So he was working, and he said, he was like crying, I swear to God, I wasn't protesting, I was coming back from war. Mm -hmm. And they took them, and we don't know anything about them. When the military came, they came like a couple of times, but one of the, the times that they were like looking around in the house, and my 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 son hide in his closet. Mm -hmm. So when they were like looking, and some of even like the, these guys, the military, they came, they were like good people, but they weren't able like, to speak out or mm -hmm. say anything. Mm -hmm. So they, they got, like my son, they were like looking, they opened the closet, they, they found him hiding. And when, they, when he came out, he asked me, are, they, are, are these the, military, the, the free army? Mm -hmm. And he speak out loudly in front of them. And I was really scared at yeah. that time. When he said this word, and I was thinking, like, they're going to do something bad. But one of them even uh, laughed, in, like, just a small, like, a smile, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, look at me. And I told, and then I, like, just speak out and told him, no, my, my dear, th these are the Syrian army. They're going to protect us from the free army. There was this, in there of, like, somebody who's living in our block, and there was... There was like always like snipers after what's happening, so there was this sniper who watched and been like <clears throat> watching this family, and there was they had like the only son, and he felt and knew because of like he kept watching them that this is the only boy that they he has, and he was dear dear to the, his grandfather, so he shot the kid in his head, and when the grandfather went. And asked, uh, he just said, I want just to meet the sniper that who, that killed my grandson. And when he talked to them, talked to him and asked him, why you killed my grandfather? And he, he told him that he knew and felt that he was so dear to them. And he was so, and he just wanted to break his mom's heart. Things hit home the hardest with Bathina's niece. Um, she was shot while running. And she, because she had like, 
she wasn't as like she has some weight, so she wasn't able to run as fast as her mom, and she was like running behind her mom, and she was shot in the head, and her mom didn't know that she she died because she was running and she had to hide and she thought that she like hid somewhere else, and she died and it's caught on video. And the like the guys who helped take out her body just buried her without even like her mom knowing that she died. And yeah. Just imagine that that like she's behind you running and she's been shot and then you think that she's like somewhere else but then she's you can't see her anymore. Well they were determined to stay because it was home. The last straw came knocking. For men who are like uh, like at the age and who are like at the like the time when they need to go to the security uh, to the military service, mm-hmm. and he because he was like studying in college, he, so he didn't go before. So he graduated when when it first started when in 2011, and then after like two years of that, then like before a day or two from our leaving they actually knocked on our door asking for him looking for him mm-hmm. so at that time we knew that like there isn't any way that we can't like keep staying here even like us yeah so he fifthly f- first like to a city on the border and he would have sorry he, had, he yeah. would have had to work he would have had to go serve them same military that was causing yeah these like he was killing people against the people yeah. Because he wasn't children. able, like he, because we've like seen a lot of <clears throat> soldiers and who worked for the government who are like refused to shoot the people and mm-hmm. who are like protesting, but they've been shot yeah. because they like didn't obey their. Mm-hmm. So he had like to, to choose what either to go to the military and kill, mm-hmm. or just we need to just flee and leave. Yeah. So he had him. He hided and. A city or like a small town on the border for like a couple of days mm-hmm. until I managed to like follow him mm-hmm. and then we went to Jordan. We'll find out what happened to Bethina and her family when they went to Jordan in a little while. Let's hear what CR and Donnelly of IRC had to say about the current global migration crisis. Um, so across the world these dimensions of conflict and oppression, uh, food insecurity and drought uh, economic pressures are, are combining to force people from their homes and, as I said, seeking refuge either in their own country or very often in neighboring countries and sometimes forcing them to move onwards. People will be displaced uh, from their home country into a neighbor and then move onwards in search of uh, better opportunities elsewhere. Why is the number larger than it has been? It's because of the proliferation of humanitarian crises around the world. In places like the Horn of Africa and East Africa, in countries like South Sudan and Somalia and Yemen, we see a combination of civil conflict with international dimensions at times, combining with climactic factors, drought, crop failure, food insecurity, combining with economic collapse and spiraling inflation. And those three dimensions, the conflict dimension, the natural disaster, the food security dimension, and the economic dimension are really what combine in that part of the world to drive people from their homes. 
I asked Siaran what the burden is like on the receiving countries. Well, if you think about any country that's trying to provide basic services for its citizens, trying to provide security, trying to provide access to health care and education, trying to provide electricity, etc., any significant growth in the people accessing those services puts a strain on those services. Uh, Lebanon is the most striking example where a country of a little over 4 million people has absorbed over 1 million Syrian refugees. So one in every five people in the country of Lebanon today is a Syrian refugee. Now, if you can imagine you know, the impact of that on social services in any country in the world, even the most developed country would strain to provide access to health care, provide access to education, to provide sustainable livelihoods, to provide food and shelter for that significant proportion of people. And when you put that into the context of people arriving here in the United States, for example, a country of over 300 million people, where 85,000 refugees approximately arrived here last year and even fewer scheduled to arrive here. I think that puts the burden that some of these countries internationally are sharing into quite stark contrast and helps to illustrate the importance of both continuing to support refugees in those refugee hosting countries, but also of alleviating that burden. Siaran offered some solutions the IRC is currently using as best practices. So we talk about three types of solutions to refugee situations. We talk about return, where people can go home. And it's extremely important when we talk about returns that we associate them with the concepts of safety and voluntariness and dignity. People have to be able to return safely. They have to do so willingly and they have to be able to do so with dignity when they do so. We don't want to send people back to dangerous places where they're not going to be able to to survive and thrive. Secondly, we talk about local integration. Uh, helping people uh, to integrate into the countries of in which they sought for the local integration uh, opportunity. While there are some good examples of good practice out there, Uganda I mentioned in particular, so there are many countries who see refugees only as a burden, who see them as potentially a threat, and who are not willing to open their doors to a sustainable integration process, who want to keep refugees controlled in camps, want to deprive them of rights to work, to travel, want to deprive them of access to services in the hope that they will uh, move home, that they will be pushed back. And then finally, the resettlement solution isn't working because countries like the United States that have been global leaders in that field have started to dramatically reduce the numbers of places available and started to quite actively curtail their refugee resettlement programs. So that recalling, as I said, that those are intended to be only for the most vulnerable, that even for those most vulnerable refugees, there's no longer a welcome for them in third countries where they need it most. So I asked Ciaran, what are the consequences for rejecting the less than 1% of refugees for citizenship in third host countries. These are the most vulnerable refugees out of the 22.5 million currently in the world. Large numbers of refugees actually do economically better. Um, Refugees come and they start new jobs. Over time, they contribute more in terms of taxation and returns to the local economy uh, than they cost in terms of, of the resettlement program. Refugees Um, The vast majority of refugees that the IRC resettles in the U.S. are earning incomes and in jobs and employment after uh, only a few months of being in the country. So they contribute um, significantly to local economies. They contribute to the diversity of our communities. They contribute to the health of our communities. Many, um, if not all, refugees are very mindful of the breakdowns in law and order and governance and stability that force them to flee their homes. And when they relocate to new places, far from importing instability and importing violence, as some would have you believe, they bring with them a desire for stability, um, a sense of civic pride and a a willingness to engage in building up uh, a functioning and vibrant society in which their children can thrive and prosper. So I think firstly, there's the opportunity cost that 
we forego by not welcoming refugees into the country. But I think also there's a there's a longer term um, risk in terms of fermenting instability around the world um, when people in different parts of the world see countries like the United States or countries in Europe saying uh, that um, refugees aren't welcome here, that Muslims aren't welcome here, that people from different parts of the world are not welcome here. And that does nothing to endear those countries to the United States or to European countries. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, And so in a world in which um, we all have a vested interest in stability, in combating uh, extremism, uh, and in particular in eradicating violent extremism of various kinds. Um, when we uh, when we put up walls and when we push boats back and say that people aren't welcome, all we're doing is providing propaganda to people who would uh, who would undermine the very idea of a welcome liberal society that we all aspire to. CRN mentioned Uganda earlier, so let's hear more about what's going on there. Every solution needs to be adapted to local contexts. And so 12 years ago, uh, 13 years ago, when I worked in Uganda and we supported South Sudanese refugees, sustainable livelihoods that were available to them involved giving them plots of land that weren't being worked locally and giving them access to growing crops and foodstuffs to be able to support themselves and to be able to make a little bit of money on the side, as well as having the right to move to Kampala, to the capital city, uh, and to look for work there. That was a solution that worked in Uganda at that point in time, given the local context the numbers of refugees in Lebanon, the numbers of refugees in in places like Uganda hosting a million South Sudanese, if those countries can manage to integrate and support refugees in significant numbers, uh, certainly no reason why countries with much larger GDPs aren't able to do it. CRN also covered some of the myths about refugees that we often hear. But you often hear, and you hear these um, as much on the streets of Nairobi or Peshawar as you do on the streets of you know, cities in the U.S. or in Paris or Germany, you hear people talk about, well, they're coming here to take our jobs. They're coming here to take places of our kids in school, that they're a threat. They're going to, you know, they're terrorists. They're coming here to to promote stability. And those things are not true uh, fundamentally. Those are myths that are propagated based out of a lack of familiarity based out of, you know, at times uh, a sense of fear uh, of the other, of what's strange. Uh, And the reality is that while, yes, refugees do want to have jobs uh, and do want to enroll their kids in school, that they provide net benefits to the countries that they they live in. The economic growth in and around Peshawar in Pakistan over the last 20 years has been inextricably linked with Afghan refugees setting up businesses. Some of the most enterprising young people in Nairobi these days are Somali refugees who are setting up businesses and helping to grow and shape the economy of of that city. And the same is true in Atlanta, the same is true in Dallas, the same is true in San Diego, same is true in Bonn and Berlin and Paris and London. Refugees ultimately are people who fled their homes because of fear, because of violence, and they fled seeking safety, seeking protection for themselves, but more importantly for their children. And so when they come to our countries or when they come to Kenya, when they go to Bangladesh, they're seeking out that kind of safety and that kind of protection. They're not seeking to import violence, to import stability and terrorism. So those are some of the most frequent and prevalent myths that we hear. With so much at stake, this must be emotionally taxing work. I asked Siarn what motivates and inspires him to get up every morning and keep doing it. For me, it's a number of things. I think it's the resilience of people. I travel frequently to IRC's programs around the world and have spent a long time working overseas. And when I see 
um, people, whether it's you know Somalia or Afghanistan or Congo or Syria, when I see people getting up every day and going to great lengths to provide for themselves and their, their children and their families in particular, making every effort to put food on the table, to send their kids to school, to provide medical care, and taking huge pride in their achievements, rightfully so. You know, that resilience, that determination, that courage and strength is a real source of inspiration. If those people are able to do it, given all the challenges they face, then it really is incumbent on, on us, I feel, to, to do everything we can to support their efforts and support their journey. Let's go back to Bothina and find out what happened as they fled Syria for Jordan. We went to the Atari camp. I wasn't able actually like, to stay in it because of like all the circumstances mm-hmm. and the situation in it. I wasn't able, it was very rough. Like I was even, like I wanted to stay over like I stayed the first night, mm-hmm. barely, but I wanted like, because it was like another, until like we finished all the papers and stuff like that, we, we thought that we can like actually wait till the morning because it was like daylight and stuff, but I wasn't able to wait mm-hmm. like, another night, like just to spend another night there. Mm-hmm. So we flee from the, the Zatari. Yeah. <laughs> it was like <laughs> horrifying. Yeah. Like, yeah, even like more scare, scary like then this when we flee actually uh, from Syria to Jordan. So like we've been followed because it was on over the night they were like there was this car that like followed us, wanted to take us, and we've been hiding and with the kids it was so yeah it was hard. And when we went to Jordan, we went to Jordan. Uh, my my fa- my father and mother-in-law they were like in Jordan before us but they went to just to visit but after they went to Jordan their house was uh, destroyed Mm -hmm. because of what's happening so they weren't able to go back Mm -hmm. so we knew that we had somebody in Jordan so we flee and went to to meet them and we stayed all together in complete limbo Bothina and Tamam weren't allowed to work in Jordan but had to feed their children While they waited for UNHCR to process their application for resettlement to a third country, Tamam was arrested for working and Bothina was fired from her teaching job. Eventually, though, they found out they were being resettled to the Dallas area where an uncle lived. But they were in for a surprise when they landed in New York City. The following is audio from recorded interviews with Bothina and her family at IRC just after they arrived in New York. The family was supposed to have arrived December 3rd. But that day, we were notified that the governor of Texas um, had explicitly said that he is not willing to accept any Syrian refugees into the state of Texas. It was confusing and it was uh, overwhelming. The Texas governor not uh, to accept Syrian refugees. We always heard about America and uh, as uh, the land of freedom, the land of no racism. So it was uh, the other way around. Over two years later, Bothina has a few more words in defense of Syrian refugees. Like tourist attacks in the U.S. or like in another, is like really not comparable to like other people or like whatever they have. So like their, their thinking or like their, their decisions are not based on a true Because the refugee program is a federal program, Governor Abbott was overruled by the court, and Bethina and her family were finally released. But they had to fly to Austin and be driven to Dallas to avoid media attention and to ensure their safe arrival. 
After all this, Bothina is most concerned that we not be afraid of refugees and Syrians. I asked her what she wanted Texans and Americans to understand. Yeah, I think that's like, I know maybe like a lot of people don't understand the, like the, the refugee coming to the U.S. or like coming to their country and working here and living here. But I just want to say that we never thought about actually coming to the U.S. or we didn't have this idea or like we didn't dream about coming to the U.S. But we only came here just for a better life and a better future. We just want to live and we want our kids to have just a regular and just like everybody's childhood. Like we don't want anything else. And that's like our main reason why we left everything. Yeah. We didn't leave for anything. Like there isn't anything else that you want from like leaving your country just to have a good life. Yeah, absolutely. And a safe life. That's and I understand their like fear but I think who whoever wants really to know more should like look for and search the background and search the situation mm-hmm. and because we never like we, when we were living in, in our country before everything happened we never thought that's gonna happen to anybody of us we didn't think that what's yeah. gonna, but it just started and everything was lost mm-hmm. so that's that's something that could happen to anybody mm-hmm. and maybe that's like need like a lot of people need to open their eyes about what's happening and what we are doing here now and how we're living life and look at the facts. This program is made possible by the generous support of Southern Methodist University's Embry Human Rights Program. I'm your host, Tiffany Jelke. This podcast could not be made possible without the tireless efforts of Allison Plake, audio production intern, and Michelle Laura, production assistant. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash in their own voices. Thank you for joining us.